Hello and welcome to the InFocus podcast. I'm Jee Sampar, the Hindu Social Affairs Editor. On March 12th this year, the Environment Ministry put out a draft Environment Impact Assessment Notification or EIA notification. This draft notification uh, with amended norms is meant to replace the EIA notification of 2006. So far, the draft EIA notification 2020 has triggered widespread fears of dilution of environmental norms. Thousands of environmental activists, civil society groups, opposition leaders, and ordinary citizens have written to the Environment Ministry asking it to withdraw this notification. But Environment Minister Prakash Javdekar has maintained that the protests against the draft notification are really unwarranted. So, what exactly does the draft EIA propose to do? Why are so many civil society groups up in arms against it? What changes does the draft need so that it is able to achieve its stated purpose, which is to safeguard the environment and local communities from potential damage due to developmental projects? To help us understand these issues, we have with us uh, Kanchi Kohli, a scholar with the Center for Policy Research, New Delhi. Kanchi is an expert on issues related to the environment, forest, and biodiversity governance in India. Her work explores the links between law, industrialization, and environment justice. Kanchi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Kanchi, for starters, uh, can you just give us a brief outline? Uh, of the history of the EIA in India, like how and why did we get it in the first place? I think we we got it first in 1994, and how has it evolved uh, since then? So I mean, the you know there were uh, some sectors that required uh, hy- uh, like hydropower projects that required impact assessments uh, even before 1994. But the, a formal regime, legal regime, uh, laying out uh, environment impact assessment procedures was introduced in India in 1994. and uh, this uh, was the same time eia processes were introduced globally in many different countries and they were introduced as almost like a package law uh, so in the early 90s uh, you know countries like india were going through uh, a liberalization phase we were we were asking for in, uh, investments into the country so the eia process was actually introduced as a package law to say that okay while uh, countries are working towards economic growth or inviting investments we also need to look at the impacts of these uh, amendments uh, so these uh, these investments and um, uh, you know see what is the nature of social and environmental impacts uh, and help governments take good decisions that could actually strike a balance between environment and development so the ei was never meant to uh, hold back uh, development ei was always meant to partner with development So what 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 exactly do you mean by uh, a package law? I mean, how is a package law different from a normal law? So I mean, it was almost like I mean, it was definitely like a normal law. But the thing is, the 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 philosophy behind the environment impact assessment procedures or environment regulations in India uh, in the early nineteen nineties, the the EI process uh, actually lays out you know measures which allow governments to look at uh, environment and social impacts of every investment whether it's domestic or international and then take a decision whether to go ahead with it or not so while it you know it's a notification under the environment protection act it is actually assisting governments to take good sound economic decisions based on environmental parameters so uh, you don't think there was it would have been more effective overall if there was a separate eia act rather than a notification 
I mean, see, the thing is, you one definitely is talking about uh, you know a, a full-fledged legis- legislation uh, only on environment impact assessment. But the thing is, every notification needs to speak to the Parent Act. Now, the uh, the Parent Act, which is an Environment Protection Act, is actually a important umbrella le- legislation which allows governments to take very clear measures. So, you know, uh, the clauses under which the EIA process have been uh, have been uh, administered or gazetted. They actually allow the governments to take very important decisions to restrict uh, and uh, curtail certain kinds of industrial or infrastructure activities, which will be damaging on the environment. So the mandate that comes from the Environment Protection Act, uh, which is an which is an important legislation, was always there. Now uh, there is definitely a, a conversation around whether a full-fledged environment impact assessment uh, act would be uh, would be prudent or would be would be important. That definitely is coming from the fact that because uh, a notification is an extremely malleable tool, uh, which is which can be used only uh, by the executive to constantly uh, shift around what is under it or not, and that's what uh, the EIA process has uh, retrospectively. When people are talking about it, uh, they are talking about it that it would have been important, or it is still important to actually have a full budget. Uh, legislations, but at the time the EIA was being introduced, these concerns were just about beginning, uh, you know, uh, uh, to arise. And there was faith in governments back then that the governments will be able to not let environment regulation be read down or diluted so much that uh, so it, it, it actually was coming with uh, with a certain kind of public responsibility uh, uh, with the government uh, in the early 90s. To say that okay, governments will be able to uh, assist uh, environment-friendly uh, growth based on public participation. So I don't. I think it's now. It's only with the experience with the impact assessment notification that a full budget uh, act on that uh, is being spoken about. Okay. Okay. So we already uh, have this 2006 uh, notification in place, and the 2020 notification, which is in draft form right now, uh, will replace it. So what is the need for uh, this new notification in the in the first place? I mean, why do we need it uh, at this particular point in time? What is the government's justification? See, the government's justification is largely ease of doing business. So I think uh, it, uh, it has been made pretty clear uh, from the time uh, the, the government came into power in 2014 that they would like to amend, uh, you know, amend laws that are coming in the way, uh, quote unquote, uh, certain kinds of uh, economic activity, but the the so that the big justification is to make it easy for investments, make it easier for uh, ease of doing business. But I think the, the so, so if you see the clauses that have uh, uh, you know the kinds of uh, uh, big changes that uh, that this 2020 draft is making to the 2006 notification, a lot of them speak to uh, facilitating approvals for uh, for certain kinds of you know activities or infrastructure and econo- uh, or infrastructure or industrial growth so for instance a large amount of exemptions uh, to several category of projects a large amount of uh, exemptions from public consultations or for for a whole bunch of uh, you know activities um, you know basically categorizing uh, certain kinds of um, you know activities as as a as a B two category, which will which will require an environmental permission and not necessarily a full budget environmental clearance, with with basically lesser environment impact assessment uh, procedures to be followed, no full budget assessments to be made. Uh, it also talks about uh, you know the the big big controversy is around the idea of how 
notification uh, really is uh, going to deal or push for post facto approvals. So, for instance, if you've actually violated uh, the the EIA process, which is which is actually the government has actually realized that they have over three thousand such projects, uh, you know, in the first six months of two thousand seventeen that they got, uh, which which basically said that we have violated the you know EIA process. We've not taken an environmental clearance, so they come back to the uh, the ministry for approval. So this is a big controversy because it actually is talking about uh, you know re allowing a post facto clearance of. Uh, of projects that have already violated. So in recent times, you've uh, you've seen projects such as uh, a large uh, mine in Odisha that has been listed before uh, the ministry for that. The Vizag ga gas leak that we spoke about was listed before the violations committee before the yeah you know the environment ministry. So all these kinds of projects which which uh, which admit that you've actually violated and uh, and and should be tried under the Environment Protection Act or other as as criminal offences if there've been a, you know impacts. Uh, they will have an opportunity to come back and seek post facto approvals uh, based on remedial plans. Does, uh, does, the, does the fact of uh, there being a possibility of post facto regularization or post facto approval mean that all legal challenges for punitive measures uh, over violations are blocked? So they might not be blocked, but actually, what the what the notification does is that you give an opportunity to a violator. Who has admittedly actually done, you know, knowingly not followed the law, and now, right now, with this, for, you know, over two decades of this law being in place, you can't say you're ignorant about the law. So, you know, uh, it'll, it'll allow that. It, it doesn't stop anybody from going to court or the National Green Tribunal. But the fact is, there is a there is an inbuilt opportunity for the uh, for the company or, or a project proponent to come and say, "I apologize, I missed out," and get. Uh, you know, an opportunity to get regularized without procedures of uh, impact assessment or public participation, which were mandatory. So the whole it actually defeats the whole idea of prior environmental clearance. You know that you need to do something before you start set up operations. So it completely defeats the very principle on which EIA processes were introduced. So you are saying that uh, the, the, uh, given that a fundamental principle of EIA is to get prior clearances. On environmental issues, prior clearances from local communities. Here, uh, that uh, the draft notification is uh, subverting it by offering post facto clearance. Is what you're saying? Yes, and actually, its violations can always be dealt with by the government as administratively. But what this does is actually introduces it normalizes the fact that there will be violations. So there is it reduces the deterrence uh, on people not to take prior environmental uh, approvals because what you can do is actually. You know of a process that if you mess up, uh, you can come back and get regularized based on payment of a fine or and if if the principle behind the notification is ease of doing business, the decision is likely to go in favor of the business and not in favor of the all the set of people that have been affected by the problem. Uh, you know by say uh, impact assessments not being done or public participation not done before a project is set up because setting up a project is not just about Following the law, setting up the project actually has uh, very serious ground um, impacts on people, on on land, water, access to forests, access to the coast. So I think you know there is there are there are very real social implications, livelihood implications, and ecological implications when you don't follow the law. So uh, one of the criticisms of the draft has been that it violates both Domestic uh, Environment Protection Act 1986 as well as 
established principles of international uh, environment law is there substance to this i mean yes largely i mean if you see the uh, you know in the late 80s early 90s when ei processes were introduced in countries like india we were talking about a public participation we were talking about precautionary principle we were talking about intergenerational equity these were the principles being spoken about in in the rio conference and uh, we were talking about sustainable development all these were supposed to be international principles that were supposed to be imbibed by domestic law uh, so the moment you do away with the uh, you know the the idea of prior environmental impact assessments uh, and introduce post facto assessment you automatically do away with the precautionary principle because you are you are you're, you're really going you're, you're questioning uh, you know the very need to think things through before taking a decision you know uh, so i think there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, factors intergenerational equity when you're promoting a certain kind of you're saying that uh, you know certain kind of economic growth is a must uh, and then we'll think of uh, consequences later uh, then that actually uh, raises larger questions about your so ei has to be seen in the light of also the other kinds of economic uh, decisions that the government has taken we're talking about new highways from 22 or 33 new highways that we're talking about we're talking about uh, opening up greenfield areas for coal mining we're talking about infrastructure development across the entire coastline so i think if if you locate the changes to the ei notification with the all the other kinds of economic policies that the government is taking then it raises questions about that it's it's responding to those economic policies which are going to have huge implications of intergenerational equity Uh, or, or precautionary principle or sustainable development. Okay, so are there any particular uh, specific treaties or protocols that India has signed, uh, which may be uh, violated by this uh, notification? So I mean, see, the thing is, uh, you we have to definitely read if you want to read and uphold the very principles of uh, or the uh, the mandate of uh, international treaties like the Rio uh, uh, Treaty. Or, or the, or if you want to talk about the Convention on Biological Diversity, you you want to talk about the UNFCCC, all these kinds of international uh, you know conversations that we are talking about will talk about uh, importance of public participation, impa- importance of uh, environmental justice. So I think a whole bunch of uh, international law that can have a bearing on a notification. But the thing is, you have to see the notification also in the light of. uh one is the international principles which actually had led to the parent legislation so the environment protection act also is of course you know can be vetted ar- around that and within that then how these malleable uh, you know gazette notifications are actually even violating the the domestic law and in turn violating the international principles so uh, so how would you assess the the effectiveness of the eia mechanism so far so if ha, have there been any uh, projects that have been shelved because of it because of public hearings and uh, other uh so i mean the experience of the eia process in india actually from the point of view of affected people uh, or lot citizens actually has been quite um, it's it's been criticized not just by um you know citizens and civil society groups uh, the ministry itself is admi- uh, you know admitted saying that uh, the quality of impact assessments based on which approvals are given is poor uh, uh, it has raised questions about ei consultants who've done it uh, bodies like the planning commission have given very clear recommendations to say how the uh, the making of the ei report itself should not be uh, funded by project proponents uh, you know uh 
uh, the manner in which public consultations have been done has been the concerns have been raised uh, related to that the cag has raised concerns about how once project uh, projects are approved what kind of monitoring uh, and compliance takes place on the safeguards so there have been a whole bunch of uh, issues that have been raised uh, with which are very based on very sound experience including the fact that the uh, the rejection rate of uh, of the projects that comes uh, before the you know environment ministry is less than 1 or 2% so hardly any projects get really uh, not approved when it uh, you know they get rejected uh, before when it comes for environmental approvals similarly there is evidence to say uh, in 2009 when we did a study uh, we realized that the compliance of post approval conditions so once an, a project is approved that one those 99% of the projects that are approved how do I, how do they actually comply with the uh, you know environmental safeguards and you we, even back then we realized that it's upwards of 90% uh, that there is non compliance so which means the very fact that you need to uh, adhere to pollution control norms or you do not need to encroach uh, on certain kinds of fishing uh, habitats you've actually done that so these conditions were supposed to hold back the impacts uh, you know in a, in a trade off that some of these uh, projects are required but they have not been able to do that so the it's not like the eia law right now uh, or the eia regulation right now is a good regulation uh, but obviously the reaction is that you don't want to make it worse okay okay because i was going to ask you next if if the eia has, has, has such a poor record of uh, rejecting uh, a potentially harmful environmental project and if it has such a poor record of enforcing compliance the quality of these reports are so bad then why bother with you know uh, whether it's getting diluted or not if it anyway going to be ineffective yeah i think that the the most people have been talking about or the many people have been talking about actually strengthening a process like this because if you understand a process like this it is based on it is not telling the governments not to uh, pursue economic growth or investments it is telling the government when you do it what should you keep in mind uh, and i think in the you know in the era where uh, air pollution climate change uh, you know sea erosion cyclones and other uh, human human created uh, disasters are actually uh, common speak a precautionary approach to uh, to economic growth is extremely essential uh, it is also extremely essential because you you are seeing just in the uh, in, you know in the in the lockdown uh, phase of the last 5 months you've seen the number of industrial accidents that have come up so people actually are not uh, are talking about strengthening uh, you know ei processes to include things like biodiversity uh, climate change concerns public health social justice rather than doing away with it completely because it can give a process through which uh, you know good environmental decisions can be taken based on principles of uh, participatory democracy uphold uh, you know the fundamental duties of the government uh, related to the constitution to protect the environment so i think uh, that is why people are demanding that we need a much more robust system through which this is done uh, which can safeguard uh, the environment uh, which can safeguard society which can safeguard businesses and it can safeguard futures so rather than really giving up on it so the the push is to stop you know the idea is to not go down the track of further uh, you know a, a retrograde great step further but actually 
hold back right now so that you can you can strengthen the process to include the concerns of today a lot of these concerns have come up much more today uh, than when the eir regulation was first drafted in the 1990s okay and one of the concerns over this draft notification have been center state relations and fears of uh, dilution of federal uh, federalism and the federal principle so what is uh, your comment on that so one of the things see earlier uh, so the eir process basically talks about setting up a state environment impact assessment authority which will uh, which will assess and clearly directly monitor certain kinds of projects uh, every state will have one uh, body like this every every state will have a, a cia which is from 2006 onwards this this is uh, there now uh, the 2006 notification basically asks states to uh, nominate members and the and the body would be setting up be set up by the central government now it is it is reduced the the manner in which the clause is framed right now is that the the, the uh, state governments have to send names the central government sets it up but if the state government does not set it up for for any kind of conflicting reasons etc the central government holds the power to set up these bodies now for instance if you see a place like delhi right now does not have the state environment impact assessment authority for the last two 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 and a half years and because of that all projects like the redevelopment projects uh, like all b2 projects including the parliament is actually going before the central government for approval because delhi does not have a cia so you know this 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 pattern can actually the concern is that this can happen if the state disagrees uh, with the center's composition uh, or the names have not been uh, approved uh, by the center then this conflict can arise because center holds the powers to actually um, uh, you know set up these bodies okay so there is a clear element of centralization happening through this draft uh, notification yeah it was to a large extent there it has just been furthered okay can you uh, elaborate a little bit on the exemptions aspect of the debate like what like for example many people would wonder what's wrong in offering uh, exempt, exemptions to the requirement of prior clearance when it comes to strategic sectors or for projects where there is no likelihood of environmental harm so what's happening uh, in this uh, subject so, I mean, see to in both these uh, both these aspects strategic is a very very broad word uh, anything can become a strategic project whether it is in the border areas whether it is uh, a redevelopment project uh, in 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 an urban area whether it's a waste to energy project whether it is a hydropower project whether it's a coal mine which is important for energy security strategic projects have actually not been uh, defined anywhere so at this point of time anything the government thinks is strategic uh, can uh, can can be uh, you know exempt from the uh, from the entire due due diligence that is required before projects are, like this are set up uh, so that is that is one big problem uh, with the strategic uh, uh, you know the, the the inclusion of the idea of strategic uh, projects uh, because strategic can be strategic for economic growth it can be strategic for defense it could be uh, strategic flood control uh, which is an irrigation project how they are kind of justified so it it's a very broad uh, sweep uh, that is broad sweeping powers that uh, governments can hold to do away with basic precautions uh, on which uh, these projects should be set up so that is uh, the the issue with uh, strategic projects there are also problems with the other kinds of exemptions that have been given say for expansion projects now the question that is raised here is that uh, projects which do not have an environmental impact it is very 
you know even without studying what the uh, what the impact is one cannot say there is no environmental impact uh, and i say this because every project requires the use of land water uh, other kinds of uh, natural resources where they set up so this is you need to understand the impacts both in greenfield areas where you're going to going to replace the existing uh, lives livelihoods uh, ecosystems as well as already polluted areas where there are many projects are in the in the in the nature of expansion projects which can make it even more critically polluted without addressing uh, you know the history of uh, uh, history of how the same project has been operating over a period of time or, or what is the uh, what is the credibility of the project proponent itself so actually this it's almost like you know you you keeping a, you know putting a blind eye to uh, to saying that certain certain kinds of projects like expansions or you know strategic projects do not have an environmental footprint uh, and i use the word environment in the broadest sense including social justice uh, you know and livelihood concerns here uh, one has to see it in that kind of uh, in, in a much broader sense then uh, look for ways to keep sectors out one needs to actually look for ways to bring uh, sectors in to this uh, in in this this important oversight okay and how is the the new classification of a b1 and b2 projects different from the old classifications and and do they have any particular implications that we need to so uh, worry about? so a earlier in 2006 we had a and b uh, it was the state uh, you know the state impact assessment authorities could decide uh, that what would be a b1 project which requires an eia and a public hearing and what would be a b2 project that uh, that does not require either of these now these b sorry uh, b2 does not require either of these yes Yes. In in what is, how is A different from B one and B two? So uh, basically, you know, in two thousand six, we had category A and category B. Category A was all projects that were had to be approved by the central government. Uh, category B were all projects that to be that was to be approved by the state impact assessment authorities. Within B, there was a screening process uh, in the EI two thousand six, where state uh, impact assessment authorities or the CIAs could. Uh, define projects as b1 or b2 b1 would require an ei and a public hearing b2 would not require it now what we have is a predefined set of b1 and b2 the decision making has been taken out of the hands of the uh, state uh, body yes b1 and b2 is no longer with the uh, state impact assessment authorities in fact this uh, notification proposes setting up of a special committee special technical committee which can continuously review categorizations of projects if you see this as a eia as a political tool which has a large number of projects under the regulatory net if you see it as powers of the uh, of the central government to be uh, to be able to set up state impact assessment authorities if states don't do it all of it together does centralize a large extent the powers the central government would hold to approve projects to shift categorizations to nominate the kind of members on uh, on state bodies uh, in its entirety okay okay and how do you see public hearings playing out under the new uh, draft uh, guidelines as opposed to the early one because i think that they have reduced the number of days which have been made available uh, and so on right 
so from uh, both from the point of view of reducing the number of days based on which uh, you know which is where which is basically a notice for the public hearing uh, from 30 to 20 days so that is one and actually taking out a whole bunch of uh, uh, you know sectors from the requirement of public consultation itself like which are the sectors which have been taken away so i mean the whole b the, the entire list of b2 category projects uh, requires no no public consultation itself Uh, there are a whole list of uh, exemptions that have been listed. Certain uh, kinds of linear projects uh, that are or like highways of of a certain um, I would say a certain kind of parameters that have been defined. They have been uh, uh, taken away. So there is there there's a whole very long list of uh, projects which have been done for which uh, public consultation has been done away with. Now you see this along with uh, for that matter, yeah, all all. Um, all projects not just mining all projects all expansion projects up to 50% capacity are out of the regulatory net for uh, public consultations all of them so one can actually see projects deciding to get themselves approved with 20% capacity then 30% capacity uh, it actually encourages piecemeal expansions rather than giving a full a full idea of um, you know and i say this primarily because of the experience that this uh, this provision had been introduced of uh, you know uh, for mining projects in particular uh, coal mining projects where coal mining projects have in in, in states like chatisgarh taken piecemeal expansion approvals to just uh, dispense the requirement of public consultations so uh, that that would happen uh, offshore and onshore uh, oil and gas exploration will not uh, require public consultations so you know the what about solar uh, power projects there have been some talk about uh, that aspect as well so solar solar projects uh, do not require environmental clearances per se so they they don't even do it require it even now they are out of the net of the environmental clearance they've been exempted even under the 2006 notification so it's just being they just extending it further so uh, to finally conclude this what do you think is a way forward I mean, would you would you like to say uh, list five things that you want to change in this draft to make it fair and just or is it so bad that the government has only one option and that is to uh, simply withdraw it and start it all over again so i think see the government has now received uh, from from what i hear from news reports is uh, over 17 lakh comments uh some you know many if if there are 17 lakh comments that have gone to the government it does give a clear idea that there is uh there are serious concerns with the manner in which this notification is drafted but i think we we cannot only take this as a reaction to uh, the eia 2020 it is a call to the government to actually uh, revisit eia processes revisit the impact assessment processes including concerns like public health uh climate change biodiversity social justice all these big concerns we need to look at far more deeper processes uh, that that uphold principles of public trust doctrine uphold principles of precaution, uh, precaution intergenerational equity and then design a system uh that can that can truly uh you know talk about uh, economic growth that is that is led by an environmental vision rather than actually reading down and keeping aside environment and social concerns which come back to actually bite every project when there is an industrial accident when there is a pollution and it leads to conflicts and conflicts actually don't help the environment they don't 
help society and they definitely don't uh, help economic growth and ease of doing business. Pranchi, uh, thank you so much uh, for all these insights. Thank you.